that's the you know that's probably the, one of the bitterest pills that people here have to swallow is that these guys are they don't come cheap and Liverpool taxpayers are paying their their wages they're paying their um, expenses hotels while they're here so that's very you know it, it feels very much feels like there's this kind of sword of Damocles being held over Liverpool and and there's not really much the city can do now I think a lot of anger is rightly um, pointed towards those who's who've allowed this position to to come about. Hi there, you're listening to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Liverpool Echo, Hull Daily Mail and Yorkshire Live. I'm Rob Parsons, Northern Agenda editor, bringing you the politics stories that matter from beyond the Westminster bubble. Now, you'll be interested in what our guest today has to say if you're one of the 93% of the country that went to a state school. Imogen Carr, who grew up in Lancashire, is part of the 93% Club that aims to help create a rival to the old boys network which allows some professions to be dominated by private school graduates. But before that, let's have a look back on some of the big stories in Northern politics with the help of Liam Thorpe, political editor of the Liverpool Echo. Liam, welcome. Hi Rob, how are you doing? Good, yeah, very good, very good, thank you. It's It's been a week, I think, where there's been a bit of a hurricane of chaos in our national government in recent weeks. Maybe it's been reduced to a howling gale, but it's not blown out entirely. Scarborough's famous former fireplace salesman, Gavin Williamson, who's somehow persuaded successive prime ministers to appoint him to his top team over the years, looks to have been left with his political career in ashes after quitting over bullying claims and Chesterbourne former health secretary Matt Hancock is equally unlikely to return to top level politics after trading in hearing the concerns of his constituents for being covered in rats and cockroaches in the Australian jungle and what else have we learned Liz Truss's plan to build Northern Powerhouse Rail in full from Hull to Liverpool with a stop in Bradford is going to be halted by Rishi Sunak before it's even got off the ground and her vision for low tax investment zones which have attracted loads of interest from town halls across the north, now look like they're not going to happen either. Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, looks like he's going to cancel that idea in his autumn statement next week. But in the north, it's been a big week on Merseyside. Michael Gove, now back in post as levelling up secretary, is stepping up the government's intervention into Liverpool Council. Now, Liam, you've been covering this story quite extensively. What's, what's been happening? Yeah, Rob, so it, it, in many ways, we knew this was coming, but it's still a very significant moment that, that it has been confirmed. Um, in the summer, we uh, it's hard to remember, actually, because of how many different secretaries of state there have been in post. Um, you've got to remember that when Liverpool first became the subject of a government intervention, this was about spring, spring into summer last year. That was when Robert Jenrick, remember him? Oh, he's back. He's back in the cabinet now, isn't he? Um, well, he's back. He's back as a minister. Um, he he was the secretary of state for what was then the local uh, local government and housing department, which is now known as the Leveling Up Department. Since then, we've had we've had so Robert Jemmerich, Greg Clark, Simon Clark. Now back to Michael Gove, who was also in between Robert Jemmerich and Greg Clark. So it's hard to keep up with exactly who's in charge. And of course, these things matter a lot to a, a council like Liverpool when that department has such a kind of hold on how the council is being run. So for those who don't know, um, that intervention initially came after a a damning government inspection um, of the council. That came after a number of arrests linked to the city council, including 
um, the former mayor, Joe Anderson, and other some other significant figures. The, the Max Caller report, as it was known then, lifted the lid on all sorts of failings at the council, huge amounts of money wasted, bad practices, toxic atmospheres. And initially, four commissioners came in to oversee the work of, of a number of key departments, regeneration, um, property and highways, things like that. I think what they've found when they've got to the council is more widespread problems. And it, it's been mooted for a while that, that the intervention would be expanded. And that was that was sort of confirmed to me by Greg Clark in the summer during his brief stint as Secretary of State. And that's now been confirmed by Michael Gove, um, who has now returned to the fold. So the news we got this week is that as well as the four commissioners that are in place now, there's going to be a new commissioner added, a finance commissioner. And that is the most significant of all, really, because um, Stephen Hughes, who's coming in, will basically have massive say over the day-to-day financial decision-making of Liverpool Council. That's particularly pertinent, as you will know, Rob, it's, uh, we're into budget-setting season and you know Liverpool Council's faced huge amounts of cuts. It, it's, it's preparing to pass the half a billion pound mark of cuts since 2010. But what it's tried to do previously is try and find creative ways to, to not close down services, to not lose children's centres and libraries and things like that. If you've now got a, a, a government commissioner overseeing that, 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 that budget process, there's a feeling that, you know, that they won't be as, I guess, they won't be as sympathetic to, to, to what the city needs and the services. There's a lot of worry around that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the point, isn't it, I guess? Because, I mean, looking around other councils around the north, uh, all of them are having to shave more millions or tens of millions off their budget. It's all looking extremely bleak. But I guess the difference is that these are politicians who have been elected by local residents who have some democratic mandate to make these decisions. The bloke who's been put in charge of finance commissioning at Liverpool Council by the government has no such such mandate. I mean, I, I don't know what difference that will make to the decisions that he makes, but I guess it it won't it won't make it a, a less bitter pill for taxpayers in Liverpool to, to swallow if these austerity cuts are coming. Well, especially as they're paying his eleven hundred pound a day salary as well while he's here. That's the you know that's probably the, one of the bitterest pills that people here have to swallow is that these guys are they don't come cheap and Liverpool taxpayers are paying their their wages, they're paying their um, expenses, hotels while they're here. So that's very, you know, it, it, feel, it very much feels like there's this kind of sword of Damocles being held over Liverpool and, and there's not really much the city can do now. I think a lot of anger is rightly pointed towards those who's, who've allowed this position to, to come about. And that's the, pre, you know, the previous administration. Just to, to talk about the, 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 the expanded intervention a bit more. So you've got this finance commissioner, then the, te- the now five strong team of commissioners not only have power over finances, they also have power over recruitment, so they can they can basically hire and fire who they want. The chief executive will now be appraised by the commissioners. You know, this is not what it was, what the initial intervention was. It wasn't quite as, as, as sort of robust as that. You've now got a situation where the Whitehall commissioners are basically in charge of everything. And as you say, for, for a, you know, a passionately Labour city as it is, there's not, there's not a single Conservative councillor in Liverpool, not, not no Tory MP in Liverpool. You've now got a Conservative-led government in such a position of control here. And it's, it's yeah, it feels pretty bleak for, for the people of Liverpool, really. And there's a lot of concern about, about what's going to come in the next few months with that budget as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you, you were talking about the uh, hostile relationship that a lot of uh, voters in Liverpool have with the Conservative government, which brings me on to the next uh, quite interesting story I was hoping to talk to about talk to you about, and it comes from another podcast actually that I was listening to, Political Thinking with the BBC's 
Nick Robinson, who was interviewing our latest education secretary, Gillian Keegan. Is it six in six in five months or five in six months? There's been a lot of them anyway. Um, but Ms. Keegan, she went to school in Nosley on Merseyside and she left at 16 to work in a car factory, had a successful career in business and then climbed the career ladder. So she's now in high political office. But she's one of the quite a few politicians born in Liverpool or the surrounding area who've gone on to senior positions in a Tory government. There's Nadine Dorries, Kit Malthouse, Therese Coffey, Jake Berry. They've all served in Tory cabinets in in recent weeks, uh, but they all hail from an area which in the last four decades, as you've described, has a, a deeply hostile relationship with the Conservative Party. I'm interested in your take on that. I mean, how, how do you have any theories as to why how, how that's happened? I'm, I'm guessing uh, it's not something that is necessarily a matter of pride for people in, in Liverpool, that they've got, it, it's a sort of a breeding ground for, for senior Tories. Yeah, there's also um, one that sometimes doesn't get mentioned, Stephen McPartland as well. Um, I think, I believe he used to be, have a, have a, a, a higher position. Um, yeah, there's quite, quite a lot of them. And w- one thing you will notice is that they all had to get quite far away from Liverpool to get their safe Tory seats, um, whether it's Bedfordshire or, you know, Suffolk Coastal, that uh, they weren't going to get a seat here for the Conservatives, that's for sure. I think it, it's it's interesting, as you say, certainly for, for people, for, for Scousers now, they, they get quite frustrated by it. Every time there is a reshuffle, I get sort of tweets saying, how's another, there's another Scouser in the, in the Conservative cabinet. Um, I've got a few theories on this. I think that, you know, if you were, if you were brought up in, in, in a city like Liverpool and you did have more right-leaning views. Um, it was probably pretty hard. It was probably pretty tough because I imagine you probably were quite isolated, really. And in, in some ways, I think that you that you would then, that might, you know, you would then go and seek companionship in, that, in those views elsewhere. I think it might also, it might in some ways, it might harden those views because you like, well, you know, I'm getting such a lot of grief for this that, you know, I'm just going to kind of stick stick to my, you know, my convictions. Um, and, and I think you saw in Gillian Keegan's interview, obviously the 80s was a extremely diff- difficult and febrile time in Liverpool with the deindustrialization of the city, the soaring unemployment rates, the the, the Toxteth riots, and that the, the city was effectively at loggerheads with Margaret Thatcher. So the vast majority of people who remain here and, and have ties to Liverpool took one view on that, which is which is that they despise Margaret Thatcher and they 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 blame her for for what what happened here and the the the, the sort of setbacks that 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 era brought upon the city. But I guess if you're not on that side, like Julian Keegan said in her interview, she took the other side and she was unhappy with the the militant led uh, council's approach to things. She thought that it was their fight that got Liverpool into that mess. And I think she said to Nick Robinson, that's that's what inspired her to get involved with the Tory party. So my, my view is that if if you, were, if you did become a Tory in that period in Liverpool and the surrounding area, you're probably pretty hard-lined um, and you probably decided that you want to take it as far as you can and many of them have ended up in the cabinet. So it's quite a peculiar quirk, really. Um, but there, I think there is probably some rationale behind it. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's, it's perhaps the case that Liverpool has a, a more polarising sort of culture than, uh, yeah. than other places which don't have such strong sort of political beliefs amongst most people and yeah that could have hardened like you say the the views of people who were already a bit more right right leaning I mean presumably it doesn't make people in Liverpool more sympathetic to these ministers because they're from Merseyside does it? No I mean um, not to just pick on Nadine Dorries in particular but obviously she's very outspoken 
and during her time supporting Boris Johnson, she was a particular, it was a particular um, issue for many people in Liverpool that she, you know, got, is a scouser by, by birth and they found that quite difficult, I think, um, with her, particularly with her very, very strong and, and loyal support of Boris Johnson, who, of course, you know, scousers have their own issues with as well. So, no, I, I think it's probably the opposite of a, of a point of sympathy and, and support, really, for people around here. They, they get intensely frustrated by how many uh, people linked to Liverpool keep seeming to pop up in Conservative cabinets. Now, of course, we have to remember that politics is as much about people as it is about, you know, the, the, the politicians, like people, pe- people in real life and about the impact that their decisions have on them. And there was a shocking story that I read in the Liverpool Echo this week, which shows just how much people uh, on Merseyside and elsewhere are already suffering with this cost of living crisis, which is just getting worse and worse. It was a story about a pensioner called Irene, who's been living in a freezing, dilapidated house. She's had her gas supply isolated, left with only a tiny electric heater to provide warmth in her home. And there's holes in the walls, doors hanging off hinges. I mean, the, the, the pictures in the Echo really tell the story better than better than I can. But it's a pretty desperate situation that she is facing. But actually, the publicity that the story in the Echo generated has had a, a positive, almost heartwarming uh, outcome. Can you just tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's one of those stories that it's it's difficult to hear about it. But then when you see the reaction, and if you you know if we think we've played any small part in 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 helping Irene's situation, it's it's kind of affirming for you know what we do in journalism in local journalism I think it can can be really important but the real credit for this goes to um, a guy called James Anderson he, he's from Burnley but assures me he's not the cricketer he runs a, um, a sort of community interest company called DEFA CIC and, and they've been in the news before because they basically they go around and try and find um, people living in squalid and difficult conditions who can't afford to, to, to pay their way out of it and they want to help them and he was the one who first flagged up these pictures from inside Irene's home in, in Highton. And you know, that, it was very clear this was not a house that was fit for human habitation. It was that this tiny little, a gas had been isolated and cut off, this tiny little electric heater to try and heat this whole house with, as you say, doors hanging off. So it, it, was, it was dreadful, absolutely dreadful to see. We've not identified Irene because um, she doesn't want to be. We think she, may be, she, you know, she might be quite vulnerable and we don't want to cause too much attention on her. We just wanted to highlight her situation. And after we raised the story, um, within, I think, 12 hours, the people of Merseyside and beyond had donated about 10 grand. Um, and not only that, sort of more, more importantly, in a way, Loads of tradespeople had got in touch with James and his team. We had people donating a skip for clearing the house. There's people who could provide carpets. Someone provided a hob. A cleaning company have just volunteered to go and clean the whole house. And now um, the latest update is James got in touch yesterday to say they've now decided um, uh, in two weekends' time they're going to Irene's going to go and stay with family. And over the course of that weekend, they're going to basically do the whole house and they're going to do it up really nicely, get all these basics in place and, um, you know, paint and decorate, clean it up and even buy her a Christmas tree. So when she comes back, it'll be a a house that's right for a person to be in, but it'll be a bit better than that as well. It'll be a warm and pleasant place for Christmas. And, you know, ultimately, this isn't something that social enterprises or charities or the members of the public should be having to pay to do. People shouldn't be living like this and there should be a safety net for them. But where there isn't, it's pleasing to see that so many people want to help someone in trouble like that. And as I say, if we've been able to help with that at all, then then that's a source of pride for us.
Yeah, I mean, it's a it is a lovely, heartwarming thing that that people have done to help Irene. But like you say, it's uh, there's there's doubtless many thousands more people like her who uh, haven't been written about in the Liverpool Echo and maybe suffering in silence. And yeah, the worry is what's going to happen to to those people over the over the winter. That's 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 my my fear. But um, well, it's great news about Irene. So uh, we wish her all the very best in the run up to in the run up to Christmas. So Liam, thank you thank you for telling us all about what's going on in Merseyside. Always good to catch up, Rob. Take care. Cheers. Now let's hear a bit from our guest today. Here's a statistic for you. A university graduate in the North East will on average earn just £29,000 in comparison to £40,000 for someone from London. And here's another one. 93% of people went to state schools in the UK, but they make up a much smaller proportion of our top professions. 34% of FTSE 350 CEOs, 35% of senior judges, 43% of members of the House of Lords, and, dare I say it, 56% of journalists. But there's a quite new organisation that's joining the fight to level up those numbers. It's called the 93% Club, and it describes itself as a members club to rival some of the most exclusive and expensive clubs in the UK. According to their website, they're taking on a centuries-old system and repurposing it to change society and tackle social immobility head-on. And on Friday this week, it's hosting a big Northern Conference in central Manchester. 150 students uh, are coming over for a day of upskilling, networking and community building to show the wealth of opportunities that is available outside London and the South East. We often hear that phrase, it's not what you know, it's who you know. So what I would like to find out is how can we create an alternative to this old boys network and particularly to make it easier for talented young people in the North to break into these top professions. So let's talk to Imogen Carr, who's mentoring lead for the 93% Club, but she's from Preston in Lancashire and knows all about some of the issues that are holding people from the north back. So uh, Imogen, welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's nice to have you on. Thank you for taking the time. So maybe you could start by taking us through a bit about your background and how you got involved in the 93% uh, Foundation in the first place. Definitely. So as you said, I grew up in Preston, which for those people who don't know is in the top 20% of most deprived areas in England. Uh, 17% of children from Preston come from low income households. We have um, a lower life expectancy than the average. We have higher self-harm rates, higher crime rates, uh, higher domestic abuse rates, uh, and our workforce is uh, less than than less qualified than the GB average. So inequality is really obvious in Preston and I think as a politics student um, growing up with an interest in politics that was always really obvious and I come from a household where one of my parents was very working class growing up and another was uh, lower middle class so I found it really easy to draw parallels between the stories that they were telling me 
about their childhoods and the world that I was living in day to day and in Preston the inequality that you see is intersectional but I think a lot of it is is class-based um so from a very young age I was always quite interested in that that class divide that was around us um and I was quite exposed to it as well because of where I grew up and once I got to university um it was the first time that I saw that like you said earlier it's not what you know it's who you know in play um with students from higher income families um, being more likely to have access to the connections that are needed, the knowledge that's needed to obtain work experience and internships, all things like that to make it easier to get into the professions that they're wanting to go into. So my, uh, I guess, passion for social mobility really grew once I got to university um, and I found the 93% club, uh, the at my university and joined as the vice president media and marketing which was an amazing experience to put throw my uh, creative hat into the rink um, and help drive up our numbers at my university and from there I got involved at the foundation um, which allowed me to pursue kind of my interest in education so as a student I was working as the professional development lead working on programs projects, resources to really help improve the chances of university students to get into those industries and break those barriers. Um, And like you said earlier, mentoring leads. So trying to make those connections now for the students to uh, be able to ask those questions to get into the industries that they want to move into. So you did politics at Lancaster University, is that right? Yeah, yes, I did. So so obviously not too far from where you were born. Obviously Lancaster is a very uh, highly rated university isn't it so and so even at that university you you could see the sort of uh divide between people who had the connections and people who, who didn't absolutely yeah so at Lancaster we have quite a high state population state school population um in comparison to places like Oxbridge but that the difference was that I saw there um one the connection of the connections that people had from higher income families were significant in helping them achieve externally from their kind of academic attainment um and then two we were we were lacking in employers wanting to come up north to see us because we were so highly uh state educated um and I think that's one thing that the 93 tries to focus on and make sure that it balances out is the students who are needing uh, a community at their university because it's got a lower state educated population and bringing those employers to the the talent at universities with a higher state population. There's, those are the two kind of main things that I've been focusing on in my role at 93. Um, and the latter was much more apparent at my university. Oh, I see. So there are certain universities where big companies are less likely to, to send representatives because for whatever reason, they don't think it's worth their while if the demographic of the university is is a certain a certain way exactly yeah that's quite depressing isn't it and quite uh must be quite dispiriting if you go to one of those universities that isn't seen as one of the sort of favored ones absolutely and it just shows that those deep-rooted ideas of who make up the best and who who should have the opportunities is actually nothing to do with the individual and and their talent in, in itself um which is quite disheartening and exactly what the mission that I want to be involved in making that change. Yeah. So the fact that a lot of these professions, the ones I mentioned earlier, that they're dominated by pupils from private schools, it's obviously a, it's not a problem that can be solved by one thing, I guess. It's quite deep rooted and it, it's got quite a lot of causes, I suppose. I mean, how, how did we get 
to this point in your in your view yeah i think i think the biggest issue is it's it's very cyclical so one problem that students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds have is not just getting in it's also getting on there's a lot of social mobility research about that that paradigm they're getting in and getting on so by getting in it's getting into the industries that you want to be in getting those jobs initially which comes from having the connections to ask questions um to pass things like assessment centers um interviews all of those things and then it's also climbing the ranks once you get into that industry or the employer that you want to be in um, and both of those are a particular struggle from people for people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds um, and if you don't know anyone at the top you're not going to get it in so the fact that there's no working class people up up near the top those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds students climbing trying to climb the ranks they've not got anyone to ask those questions to so it's just dominated by those who are traditionally in power um and i think that's why it's so deep rooted it's so hard to break that cycle and that's that's something that we are we are trying to we're trying to improve on um as a foundation and the whole level in up agenda um, and the social mobility drivers but it is like you said really deep rooted um and it is just trying to find a way to break that cycle by offering an alternate to to the old boys network yeah so that brings us on to how you're approaching tackling the problem at the 93% club I mean maybe you could tell us a bit about what you're doing because I mean I guess what I'm interested in is how much of this this task to sort of break the old boys network how much of this can be done by the young people themselves or how much of it is the responsibility of I don't know the education system or you know the actual industries that they're trying to break into Absolutely. I think there's a lot we can do as as students or representatives of students um, like us at the foundation. Um, We work quite closely with a lot of employers um, to understand exactly what they're looking for from students so that we can pass that knowledge on ourselves. Um, And we're also playing a role now in lobbying the the positions and the changes that we want to see. So working with uh, through research people who can make those changes within the education system within those industries so there's a lot that we can do but you're absolutely right there is only so much we can do without that institutional support and it's something that we'd love to see more of and it's something that we're trying to really push for but in ourselves we can we can build resources we can run insight programs um to make sure that students have the most knowledge possible to to help them get into where they want to go now, you've touched on this already, but in terms of your personal experience, obviously you grew up in Preston. I think you went to school in Clitheroe, didn't you? Which is yeah, quite did. a long way away for yeah. people who don't know the area. And of course, you went to a state school. I mean, do you, I mean, it seems like you're doing really well for yourself with your, with your job at the 93% Club. I mean, do, do you feel the opportunities weren't there for you? Do you feel like yourself and people like you are, are, are still being held back? I think I come from a really privileged position in that my parents had the, uh, we call it cultural capital. So um, that's not the wealth necessary, not economic capital, but the understanding of how the system works. So my parents knew that the schools in Preston weren't going to offer me the same opportunities that the school I went to in Clitheroe could. Um, and so they managed to help me get 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 there and have the best experience I could and I went to a grammar school which is a state school you have to take a test to get in but there's no there's no fees or anything like that and that really boosted my education and my experience I had great opportunities once I got there um and I think it really shows the problem with our education system and how broken it is just because my parents had the knowledge to to get me there 
um, I had better opportunities than my peers. So people who I went to primary school with who were seeing the same kind of results that I was getting from SATs all the way down through through the years at primary school, there was no reason why my academic achievements stood out above the rest to get me where I went. Um, it was all to do with opportunity. So there's definitely a lot of opportunity lacking. And that's something that I want to address personally, because I feel like I have benefited from the system, even though I still went to a state school. I think I owe a lot to to the fact that I got to go to the school I went to. Um, and in Preston, over half of the schools are ranking b- below average, below the national average. So there's a lot of change that needs to happen there. And it shouldn't be based on parents having that cultural capital to understand the system. The system should be working to help everyone and give everyone as many opportunities as possible. Now, let's end on a positive. Your, your uh, conference is devoted to the, uh, at least in part, to looking at the opportunities for people to advance their careers and advance their sort of employability that exist out of London. So can you just tell us about a few of those that maybe people might not might not know about? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we there are lots of opportunities up north, which aren't very well understood. Um, and I think as well, the opportunities are increasing, um, which is one positive from COVID and the, the remote world coming into play a lot more. I think it's great to recognise the creative industries that exist in the north. Um, in and around Manchester, looking at Salford, for example, there are some great media outlets for people to get involved in. Um, the civil service is working really hard to promote their hub up north in Darlington. Um, there are loads of different opportunities going on up north and we as a foundation really want to celebrate those opportunities and make sure that our talent is is joining those employers so that they can work towards continuing to improve the space up north and the opportunities that are available up here. And so we're really excited to be able to showcase some of them on Friday. Fantastic. Well, it's a very interesting conference and devoted to a, a very worthwhile subject, I think. I wish you very well with it. And I, I, I hope you managed to uh, have a really good event. So um, Imogen Carr from the 93% Club, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.